Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks, howdy and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Before we get into the heart of this episode, I want to throw out some shout outs to my new patrons over on Patreon. So as I go through this, just I would like to remind you to be thankful to them because they are making this possible. So the first one is Lori Butler. Lori Butler was the first person to sign up on my new Patreon page. Thanks a bunch, Lori. Um, you know, I went to high school with, with Lori and I haven't seen her and I guess it's been now, let's see, I don't know, 40, 40 years and she just popped up. Anyway, Lori, I see you out there and I appreciate it. And I know the audience appreciates it too. And the second uh, patron is Pat Spann. He's a real prince of a guy. Throws the best St. Patrick's Day party this side of Buffalo, New York. Pat Spann of the famous Pat's Place pizza joint um, here in America's Georgia. He stepped up to the plate to support Grass Talk Radio. Pat, thanks a bunch. And by the way, I enjoyed picking with you last night. And we always have we have Tuesday night uh, jam down there. Well, it's not really a jam. It's Pat has his, you know, he's hand selected some musicians and so on and get together every Tuesday night. Of course, they sometimes they have trivia down there and sometimes they have like oyster night and uh, various special events. And once in a while on the weekends, bands will play in there. But it's essentially a pizza joint where you can go in and get sandwiches and salads and pizzas and all that kind of stuff and beer and tea and soft drinks and whatnot. And in the back, they've got two pool tables. It's a really small little place. Uh, Pat is a very forward-thinking type of guy, though. He is one of the few businesses in the town here in America's Georgia with solar power panels covering his roof. He's a he's a solar-powered pizza joint. And uh, so anyway, I see you out there, Pat. I appreciate you, and I appreciate you, Lori. So Lori and Pat, they are the two patrons who are making this episode possible. I also want to shout out my Grass Talk Radio supporters because I've had the Grass Talk Radio supporter package as an item, as a thing, where you could just come on there and make a make a one-time contribution and download the little thing that I send you when you do that. Uh, the difference with the Grass Talk Radio supporters is that I don't necessarily, I often don't know your name. Uh, what I get is your email address. I know your email address and sometimes the name is attached to it and sometimes it's just an email address and I'm not going to read out your email address here on the podcast because, you know, you would be probably added to 10,000 spam lists. But I do want to recognize the Grass Talk Radio supporters who have made, you know, one of those one-time contributions um, 
following that link, you know, be a Grass Talk Radio supporter um, uh, in the last 30 days. So I want to I want to thank David down in Australia. I see you down there, brother, and I appreciate your support. It means a lot to me. And also, J-Pen, I'm just going to call you J-Pen because I saw those letters in your, e- in your email address. And it's funny, when it shows the location, like where they're from, you know, it said David in Australia. Well, where in Australia? It didn't really specify. You know, that's a big place. I'm sure David is quite aware of that. And then J-Pen, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but I appreciate you anyway. J-Pen is in the house, and it's saying he's in Westlake. I don't, I don't know where Westlake is. It doesn't give the state. It just says it's in the U.S. So somewhere, Westlake in the U.S. J-Pen, I'm sure you know who you are, and I appreciate you, brother. So th- that's it. I just wanted to mention those things. Uh, the Grass Talk Radio supporter uh, link is on the show notes page and on the main page at Grass Talk Radio. And also, I've added the patreon links and I, I really like this new patreon thing you know i i'd heard of it i'd heard it on other podcasts and i thought oh well you know it's just one more thing to deal with and the more i've gotten familiar with it which is you know like four days worth of getting familiar with it i've discovered now that it's this is a pretty cool thing because if a person becomes a patreon supporter of grass talk radio or any other patreon site um they're you know kind of in a little club and you can send messages back and forth there's you know it's sort of like being like a little mini private facebook group or something you know if you're a a patron of the show you can go on there and send me messages and obviously every day or two or three i'm going to go on there and have a look at it and see what's going on and that kind of thing and you can converse back and forth and i can also create posts and put up content, you know, additional episodes, just whatever kind of crazy stuff I'm, I feel like and post it there for the patrons to see. And so if you're a patron, you know, you can, let's say you put it down a buck a month, that's 25 cents an episode. You can be on that little, you know, in that little club is what I'm saying. So right now the club is pretty exclusive. We got Pat Spann and Lori Butler in there. So they're hanging out and, enjoying you know they're probably smoking cigars and drinking martinis right now sitting in the grass talk radio patreon lounge but if you want to join them over there and me to uh, just go to patreon.com slash bradley laird and you'll figure it out over there all right so let's talk about the the topic that hit me this morning and i want to say this real quick I've been recording out in the barn. I've got a tack room in the barn. The people that lived here before, it's really not a barn. It's a stable. There are five horse stalls. And then one of the stalls, there's three on one side and three on the other in a big open area down the middle. The people that lived here before were big horse people. They were like horse people, you know, barrel racing. And, you know, it's funny. It's mostly women and girls that are really into horses. And, you know, I've, I've, I had a couple of horses when I first got here. I may have told that story about when we bought the property, there were horses already here and I didn't know who they belonged to. And I thought, well, you know, they'll eventually show up and, you know, so I'm feeding these horses and wondering, are they mine or are they somebody else's? 
I'll tell the horse the horse story some other time but uh this place uh the t one of the stalls was you know basically boxed in and had a couple of windows put in it and a ceiling put over it and is the tack room where they'd keep you know their saddles and bridles and you know horse medicines and stuff like that and of course i turned it into a little wood shop and moved all my tools in here because it was the one place in the barn that i could lock the door you know the you know, just in case. Didn't want somebody walking off with my, you know, socket set or something like that. So, but what I found is that the tack room is a really nice, quiet recording studio. You know, I miss my old basement home recording studio that I had up in Rex uh, for many years. And when I moved down here, other than the house, I didn't really have like a little man cave or anything. So I I kind of moved into the tack room and the tack room is everything. It's, you know, tools, storage, you know, uh, you know, if I've got little plants I need to protect, like I'm growing, you know, starting seedlings for the garden, uh, you know, and about, I need to bring them in tonight because it might frost, you know, they, everything, potato storage, you name it. The tack room is everything. It, it's amazing how a small of a space, I'm sure, Henry David Thoreau could, uh, he's written about this, how, you know, a guy could live pretty good in this railroad toolbox down here by the tracks, you know, it's big enough to lay down in. That's kind of how I view this tack room. It's like, it's like my one room cabin. I'm looking around and here is a spoke shave that I found at an antique store that has one handle. One of the wooden handles is broken. I'm going to make a new one for that side. And uh, there's my old recurve bow hanging there. Um, looking around, there's a CD player up there, a metal detector, a couple of saws, some augers. There's an old Jorgensen clamp I found in an antique shop for, I think I gave five bucks for that. Uh, backpacks, fishing poles, spray paint, Zippo lighter fluid, uh, various kinds of stains and stuff. I've been working on building a mantle and there's a lot of stuff relating to that there. There's my old Gerstner uh, uh, tool chest that I got from Bob McIsaac in a trade. And just tools and uh, the Bradlaird Museum of Weird Stuff is over there. Um, uh, like my lint ball collection and arrowheads and things like that. Just There's just all kind of stuff packed in here, but it's a nice quiet spot. So this morning... Over the last few weeks, it's been kind of cool in the morning and really hot in the evening. So I come in this room, it's like it's air-conditioned, and it's quiet. So I move the computer and the, the Mackie mixer and the microphone out here to the tack room. It makes a nice little quickie recording studio. So that's where I've been doing the last few episodes. So this morning, I tell my wife that, look... Uh, I, I'm going out there. I've, I got these ideas for this podcast today and I'm going to go out there and start recording. So, you know, you're, I'm going to be in there recording. Let me just give you your goodbye kiss right now. And, you know, because I'm going to be in there. Don't, don't knock on the door or anything. Okay. So she's in there drinking her coffee and, you know, getting ready to go to, go to her job. And I come out here and I fire up the old PowerBook G4 laptop. Thanks, Roland Alston. <laughs> and uh, 
get everything all set, got my notes here. I've been up since six o'clock and, you know, jotting down ideas and stuff. I'm ready to roll because to, today is the day I'm putting out a new podcast. And I come in here and I close the door and it's really quiet. It's really cool. And I'm ready to roll. And what happens? The rooster, the rooster, he is feeling his oats this morning and crowing. You may hear him faintly in the background. He is full of himself today. And by the way, uh, the rooster, I got the rooster about two and a half, I don't know, two years ago or thereabouts, about two and a half years ago from uh, Patrick Owen, who plays guitar in the plug tones. He's got a little chicken house over there at his place in town. Got a bunch of hens and he got him a couple of roosters. Well, this, this rooster, which by the way, he's a male Easter egger. If you know what that is, he's a beautiful thing, but I don't tell him that because it'll go to his head and he will crow even more. He starts up by the way, at about four 30 in the morning. So you don't need an alarm clock around here. Not with him around, but Pat made the mistake of getting two roosters. So when they were just little upstarts, you know, and they were just starting to grow their combs out and stuff, they would fight all the time. These two roosters would fight. They didn't even hardly have spurs. The spurs were maybe an eighth of an inch, little, little, little like, you know, like a blackberry thorn. You know, they didn't really have weapons of war yet. Anyway, they're just fighting with each other all the time. So he's like, anybody want a rooster? Well, my poor old rooster, Mr. LaRue, he had died. An old Rhode Island Red. He was a regal character. And, well, he he went on to the great rooster uh, rest in the sky. And I was like, yeah, I, I need a rooster. You know, I like hearing that crowing in the morning. And I, I like how the rooster takes care of the hens. He, he truly does. If he sees a little bit of food on the ground and let's say they're out and they're rambling around, the hens are all walking around, pecking at each other and chasing moths and catching grasshoppers and just busying themselves being hens. And he'll spot a little, little something there, there, There's something here. Well, he'll pick it up in his beak and, cluck, 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 and then he'll drop it. He'll stick his neck way up. Like, come over here. Hey, look what I found. He doesn't eat it. He'll catch a bug and hold it until the hens come running over, and then he'll drop it and let them eat it. What a guy. I'll bet you wish you had a, if for you females in the audience, I'll bet you wish you had a guy like that, and I'll bet you do. You probably do. Because if you don't, you probably would have dumped him a long time ago. That rooster, he really takes care of those hens. He's always got his neck outstretched, looking up. You know, he hears a hawk. He's looking around. He is very watchful over them. So I feel like that's helpful because there are a lot of foxes. We got a lot of foxes and the occasional coyote. But foxes are probably the biggest threat to the chickens when they're out rambling. You know, that old fox, is, he's always thinking. He knows those chickens are there. And he, you know. You know, you've heard the song, Fox Went Out on a Chilly Night. We did it last night at Pat's place. That's what foxes do, and that, that fox wants to kill that chicken. Well, that rooster, his job is to prevent that. You know, he will battle that fox to the death if he needs to, to save those hens. And uh, so he's a very protective character. 
Well, as he was growing up, when he was maybe six months old, he was getting really protective and starting to puff his chest out like foghorn or leghorn. And uh, Jackson was out there one day running around the yard in his red pajamas. And the rooster took offense to that and attacked him and spurred him and, you know, drew a little blood. Luckily, the spurs were only about a quarter of an inch long and it was only a little scratch and we cleaned it up and everything was fine. But Jackson was terrified <laughs> after that of that chicken. You know, he's, Jackson was like seven or eight and... It just, it scared the crap out of him, you know. And it kind of hacked me off, too, because I thought, well, I can't have this chicken attacking us, you know. I may have to get rid of this guy. Let's see, what spices should I use? Should I, dumplings or, you know, fried chicken? You know, I was starting to plan my menu. Well, Darlene was going out of town that upcoming weekend with Jackson. I think they were going to New York. Um, and I thought, well, I'll just... Don't wait. I'll wait till they're gone, and then I'll have me a nice chicken dinner. That'll be great. Well, I didn't do it. I didn't have the heart to do it. I was like, no, you know, he's too valuable to the hens. The hens will always be looking at me funny after if I do that. I'm sitting here out eating chicken in front of them. That would not be good. Not that I wouldn't do that. Uh, I'm sure you probably figured that out. I probably would do that. But I just didn't. I thought, you know what? He's just young. He's stupid. He's feeling his oats. So during the week that they were gone, I'm out there working on my car, which is a weekly event. And I'm fiddling around with the car, and I've got the front end open and the back end open, and i got tools all over the place. And I'm standing there just scratching my head, and one of the hens walks right by me. They're all around me. They're always all around me. They follow me around like the Pied Piper. And I'm just standing there, and that dadgum rooster, he's now about a year old at that point, he come racing around the corner of that car, and he spurred me. I mean, he drew blood, that rascal. And I grabbed a bucket and threw it at him. Luckily, I just barely missed him. I probably would have brained him real good, and maybe I'd have had my dinner. I don't know. I missed him, but the clanging of the, the galvanized bucket scared him, and he ran off. And So me and him kind of went around and around for, gosh, I don't know, six months to a year. You know, I'd carry a stick or a shovel or something with me every time I'd let him out. I'd still let him out. and But I was a lot more cautious with him, and I'm trying to demonstrate to him that, look, dude, I'm the big rooster. You're the little one. You know, trying to establish my pecking order with this guy. And his name, uh, Patrick told me his name when he gave him to me. He says, his name is Clay. We call him Clay Bird. <laughs> and I could never remember that. I knew it started with C, and so I called him Carl. So his name was Carl. And I thought, you know, he's such a rotten rooster, I'm just going to give him a different name, a name he doesn't even like. I'm going to call him Carl. So I'd go... Good morning, Carl. Give him, you know, look at him. So me and Carl were having kind of a standoff, and you know, it's a psychological battle. It's you're trying to think, what is he thinking? And he's thinking, well, I don't know if he's thinking, what am I thinking? He's just being a chicken. But so this interplay goes on again, and then one day I'm feeding him, and he he just comes strutting. I open the door and let him out, and when they out, it's usually when I go in there to feed him. 
So I'm, I'm pouring food in his bowl and he hits me from behind. That joker. He didn't break uh, my, you know, he didn't draw blood that time, but man, he, he was asking for it. He's asking to be chicken and dumplings. And uh, Pat said, uh, yeah, I forget what he, you ought to call him the Colonel or something like, as in you're going to be Kentucky fried chicken, something like that. Anyway, so I come out here this morning, I got my recording gear all set up and he starts crowing. And he's been crowing and crowing and crowing, so I just let him out. Hopefully they'll, they'll, you know, he'll take his flock, you know, somewhere ba way back down in the corner or something. So you may hear him from time to time, but, uh, but I, I didn't have the heart. And you know what? He has, he has chilled out. He's established his relationship with me. We're on terms now. We, we get it. We get each other. And he knows that I'm not there to kill him and I'm not trying to steal his hands. He's figured that out in his little chicken brain. And it reminds me of how that's really our task as humans. That's all we're really doing. We think we're doing a lot of other things. We think we're starting businesses and we're building buildings and we're, you know, studying for a degree and you know, all these are learning to play the banjo. You know, this is what we think we're doing. But the whole thing, the entire thing, that really our real occupation is amateur psychologist. We're just trying to figure out other people and sometimes animals and sometimes ourselves. We're trying to figure out what's he thinking, why is he thinking? Why does he do what he does? Why does she do what he does? She does. It's all psychology. Now I'm not talking about that school book psychology. They tell you about the case studies and the, you know, there was a guy, you know, and he had a, you know, a lobotomy and his personality changed. I'm not talking about textbook psychology. I'm talking about daily interaction with other people. And this carries over into every aspect of your life including bluegrass music. So I'm thinking about these things and about how, you know, our ability to predict what someone, how someone may react to what we do and what we say and how we act and then our reactions to them. That's what this is all about. This whole thing. Music is just an activity. So I'm going to make the case, and before I make my case, I want to state this flat out, and I've said it kind of before, but I, Brad Laird, am not here to tell you what to think or what to do. I'm just here to tell you what I think and what I've done and what I might do. And I may be wrong. I could be completely full of it, as I'm sure you've probably noticed if you've listened to any of the past episodes, because we're all that way. You're as right about some things as you're wrong about others. We all are that way. So while I have a lot of experience in music and playing bluegrass music and in building instruments and fixing instruments and playing gigs, and you know, I've got a lot of experience that you might not have. Or you might have. But even if I have all that experience, I can still be dead wrong about a lot of things. So I just want to make that little disclaimer that what I'm saying here are just thoughts and ideas 
to get you to think and you to decide for yourself because you got to live your own life. I'm not here to plan your life for you. Not your musical life, not your banjo life, not your mandolin life, nothing. I'm not here to tell you step one, step two, step three. And it in the music business, when somebody wants to learn to play, the first general thing that they usually want to do is to learn to play an instrument and singing goes along with that, but it's usually based around an instrument and they want to learn how to, how to make good music on that instrument. You know, they want to play that banjo and be able to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown. They want to play Old Joe Clark on the mandolin. They want to play, you know, some Grateful Dead tune or whatever. They want to make the sounds and, you know, see if it's possible for them to learn to make those sounds. And what I'm going to attempt to make the case for in this episode is that music, playing music, is not about the sounds. It's not about creating sounds. Or all of the techniques, practice, learning, instruction, experience that you use to build the skills and accumulate the experience to make musical sounds. That's not really what music is. And that seems very strange because there is some of that involved in music. You're not going to sit down at a piano and play a beautiful piece on the piano if you don't learn how to play the piano and build the skills and practice and learn the techniques. I, I won't give you that. I'm going to grant you that. That those things are involved in producing musical sounds. But I'm talking about the music that results from that is not about all that. Music is really a medium of communication or a mode of communication. Just like talking is a mode of communication or, or a medium of communication. I'm talking right now and you're listening. We're, I'm communicating with you and if you're hearing it and if you respond, perhaps through my Patreon page, then you're communicating with me. Or you may communicate it by passing it along to the guy sitting next to you at a at a jam session, you may learn something about a major chord and, you know, explain to him that, well, you know, you play the third, you know, or whatever. Um, so it's, it could be, you know, communication in a chain form, or it could be direct back and forth communication, or it could be one way communication, but talking the art of speaking, I could stand out here in the yard and do this exact same presentation with no recorder. Maybe just face the old oak tree and address the oak tree properly, standing up straight and uh, trying to breathe properly and go through this entire diatribe to the oak tree. And I would, if I did that frequently and every day, every day perhaps, if I practiced, I would perhaps become an even better orator, orator in better at my delivery. I've done this with the uh, reincarnation poem. I've spent many years trying to master the delivery of that thing. 
I never have mastered it, but I have certainly tried. I could do that for the rest of my life and no one ever hear it. And I wouldn't be communicating squat. And I've, I've told you, you can't do bluegrass sitting on your couch. You can learn to play sitting on your couch. You can get better sitting on your couch. You can practice, but you can't make music sitting on your couch because music is communication. And it involves people. Yeah, I talked about the guy playing for his dog. It, you can communicate with animals, but I, they're not capable of the level of understanding that a human being is. For example, I could, instead of talking to the oak tree, who seems to have very limited ears and, you know, may sense my presence, but I don't think really gets what I'm talking about. At least I don't think they do. I could go to the donkeys instead. And I could deliver this entire podcast to the donkey. And the donkey may actually listen to me. It, you know, ears perked up and, you know. But how much is the donkey really understanding? You know, the donkey has a limited understanding, according to my understanding of what I'm even doing there. Might be amused by it, might be entertained by it, might be bored to tears by it. But when you play music for other human beings, all the way from children, babies, children, adults, all the way across the spectrum, the majority of them, even Alzheimer's patients, They've got the ability to process music. I'm not saying everybody does. Obviously, if you were deaf, you might have trouble, you know, as with music as the medium. Or if you're in a coma or something, you know, I'm not saying like every living, breathing human, you know, can respond to the musical communication. But the typical human being can. And that is what music is about. It's, it's just like talking. And when you, when you are spending all those practice hours and you are working on building techniques and skills and learning new tunes, this is what the whole music world talks about all the time. Go on Mandolin Cafe, you know, and get into the theory discussions. And that, I mean, and I do it. I do it at lessons because that's what people are paying for. You know, teach me how to play this thing. I do it in my books. I do it in all of my instructional material. You download, you know, my Salt Creek video, mandolin video lesson, and I teach you two versions of Salt Creek. And I give you some play along jam tracks and I walk you through the whole thing and show you the chords and, you know, give you tips on how to play it and which fingers to use and all that kind of stuff. That's where 99% of the music information, that's the style of information that's out there is how to make the sounds, how to get your body to take this instrument and make these sounds. But that's not the purpose. I mean, you can do that. I know some musicians who are excellent players. I mean, they can play the snot out of that thing, but they never do because they never play it for anyone else. I don't care how good you are. 
if you just stay locked up in your little lonely garret, you're not really making music. You're not making music until it's received. It's like ham radio. I could set up the ultimate ham radio station, put me up a 50-foot self-supporting tower and a rotator and a tri-band beam on top, put me a 1,000-watt linear amplifier and a, maybe an HW101 uh, to drive it and fire that bad boy up on 15 meters and start tapping that Morse code key. Got my got my cans on my head and I'm sending CQ, 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 D-E-K-N-4-V-K, D-E-K-N-4-V-K, K. No response. No response. No response. Am I communicating? No, I'm broadcasting. Now, if I just disconnected the radio and sat there just tapping on the practice code key, you take a little more, when you're learning Morse code, you take the, the code key and you just hook it up to a little oscillator. You don't really, you don't practice on the air. You don't broadcast, you know. It's, uh, you just practice. So you practice sending and you got your code key or your your little uh, paddles or whatever. And you, you're working on sending, you're learning how to send, how to get a good fist, they call it. So you're working on your sending and you listen to tapes and you listen to other people on the radio and you're trying to learn how to receive and you're, you're transcribing on pencil and paper what you're hearing. That's practicing, but that ain't communicating. You can, you can send 40 words a minute in Morse code marvelously, perfectly, have a great fist, and you ain't done nothing. I mean, you've learned the skill, but you haven't communicated anything. But if I get up at, let's say, 4 in the morning and fire up on 40 meters, dodging those shortwave stations coming in, and I find a little open spot and I hear somebody in there through the noise, and I hear a faint little... With a little chirp in it. And uh, some guy's calling CQ. I'd dial him in, get him real close, maybe turn on a filter. He's CQ, 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 DE. Gives his call sign. I missed it. I'm trying to write it down. I know he's a WB something. Got WB. And he gives it three times. Then he sends K. That means go ahead. Like, okay. So I go back to him. You know, WB4GTQ, WB4G, whatever it was, DEKN4VK. I'm like, I'm trying to establish communication with this guy. By the way, I've spent ridiculous countless hours doing that. Many years ago, I mostly got started in the 80s with the ham radio thing. And uh, boy, did I get wrapped up in that. You know, you think I'm like... Uh, obsessive compulsive about things i got that way about ham radio but so i respond to him saying about my call sign you know i call him back well did he hear it maybe he did maybe he didn't i don't know atmospheric conditions you know the f1 layer you know i don't know and you listen so you send your little response and you listen and then you hear he sent him my call sign. Now he's, I'm hearing KN4VKDEWB4GTR. And then, you know, 
are, which means received. And then name, HR here, name here is Bill in Tennessee. How copy? K N. That means go ahead, just you, just you go ahead. So Bill up in Tennessee, he heard me. He heard me, and he knows my call sign. So I go back to him, and I go, R, which means received. I got your message. Um, name here is Brad. Break. QTH, Americus, Georgia. Break. Your, or you are for your, your RST is 579. 579. How copy? Go ahead. Back to back. So I just sent him a signal report. I told him he was S579. His tone was good. His uh, readability, I, I forget exactly what RST is. Let's see, readability, signal strength, and tone, RST. So I sent him that back. Then he comes back, R, your report, 559, 559. WX is rainy, 32 degrees. <laughs> I copy. Okay, and it, so now he's telling me the weather report in Tennessee. So I'm talking to this guy in Tennessee, tapping on a Morse code key. That's communication. That's the way music is. That's the purpose of music. It, you can communicate through talking, through Morse code, through the written word. Write someone a letter. <laughs> Remember those things, letters? I sent my cousin a letter not long ago. Just because I was like, you know, I haven't written a letter and I don't know when. I'm going to sit down and write. I'm, I'm going to send my cousin Pam a letter. And I sent her a letter. I wrote it in script. I've been trying to learn Spencerian script. I'm not very good at it. but So I wrote her a letter. Hi, Pam. How you doing? Haven't heard from you in a long time. Do you still have the old Ticklebee game? And the, you know, I was just talking about stuff I remembered, you know, at their house as a kid and stuff like that. Wrote it out in longhand folded it up, two-page letter on the little stationery, you know, like they used to use in the little small six-and-three-quarter six and size envelope. Put a stamp on it, sent it off. About a week later, I got a letter back from Pam. We're communicating through written form. Communication, that's what music really is. So what I'm suggesting to you is that since my theory is that music once you know how to create some music is about communicating with other people. So it's really about relationships. When I send my cousin Pam a letter that affects our relationship, which is we barely have one. I mean, I remember her as a kid, but you know, we, I haven't talked to her in, 15 years, but she got a letter from me, so maybe I have talked to her. It's about maintaining relationships, building relationships, improving relationships, or avoiding relationships. Sometimes communication tells you, stay away from that guy, you know, that kind of thing. 
you know, it's about communication and music is about communication. So let's say you're that person, you want to play music. It's very easy to mistake the whole world of music as being about making sounds. And it partially is, it absolutely is, but that's not the end. That's not the real goal. So if you're wanting to play music or you do play music, you could do it for a, a wide variety of reasons. You could do it for financial reasons. You want to make money playing music. Well, obviously bluegrass music would be a lousy choice and probably almost all forms of music would be probably a lousy choice. Not that there aren't people that make a lot of money playing music and not that you can't make a little money or some money, but that's a, a motive for playing music that is probably not, that's not the real, that's not the real reason to do it. Doesn't hurt, you know, or your motive might be a very logical one. You know, it, you might have a rationale, a reason for playing music, you know. Well, if I learn to play the guitar, this is a typical high school garage band, that girl in my fourth period English class, she might be kind of impressed with me if I, uh, if I'm the guitar player in the band with the, you know, we're playing at the skate park this weekend, you know, and I invite her there. She could be, you know, you could take a logical approach and use it as a tool for other purposes. You could uh, use it as, and I don't think it's hardly ever done this way, but you could use music as a, uh, like, as a physical thing. I'm going to take up music to strengthen my fingers. People go to the gym every day and they run on treadmills and they lift weights for no good reason other than to strengthen their body, you know? I suppose you could use music that way. I tote this bass fiddle around to try to build my lumbar region musculature. You know, there are a lot of reasons you could play music. By the way, if you run into people who have those sorts of motives and reasons for playing, look out. If you got a guy in your band who is only, only in your band for the 60 bucks he's going to get at the end of the night, you're dealing with a different character than if you got a guy in your band who is there for the right reasons, for the other reasons which I'm about to mention. If you got a guy in your group or the, in your jam session who is there for some sort of bizarre physical fitness thing, which again, I'm going to say that's extremely rare. I, I, I can't even think of a case of that, but let's say you're dealing with people with the wrong motives. You're not going to make very good music together and you're probably not going to hang around them. And, and by the way, these in correct motivations for learning to play music remind me of my idiotic marketing skills. You know, I got my website there, bradleylaird.com. I've mentioned it many times. I've got my instructional ebooks and video lessons and metronome tracks and, you know, the, you, you hopefully you've seen all that stuff. But my idiotic marketing brain, my chicken brain, I use these same types of 
things. I use financial and logic and reasoning. That's my, my sales pitch. I try to make a logical sales pitch. A reasonable, I explain what exactly it is and what it proposes to help you do. You know, I just tell you the truth about it. This video is 23 minutes long and includes three jam tracks and a PDF which shows you in tab and standard notation. You know, it's very logical. Or it's financial and you get it for only $8, just $8 compared to you'd pay $20 to $25 for a music lesson at the local music store. And the guy probably doesn't even know what he's doing or he's mostly a guitar player and he's teaching you banjo. Um, and it's 25 bucks and he's kind of disorganized and uh, you're probably going to forget most of what he taught you on as you drive home. So I make the financial case. I make the, it's a good value case. And I make the, the logical reasoned, rational description. And so, but you know what? This isn't what people respond to. That's probably why, you know, my sales are in the dump all the time because I don't do it in the way that would be a lot more successful. And that is psychology. You do encounter those sales pitches all the time throughout the world. I just, I'm just not very good at that. I'm not telling you make your dreams come true, you know, in Three quick, easy lessons. Learn the four-note blues solo, you know. But those are the real reasons people play music. It's for psychological reasons that you want to learn to play in the first place. It is for psychological reasons that you do play or don't play. It's for social reasons. You want to be noticed. You want to be accepted. You want the pat on the back. You want to be acknowledged as a valuable human being and a contributor to some societal, some tribe, some, some element of, you need that. If you don't have that, you know, you'll go insane. You've got to have that. You get that. Now you may not get it through music. You may get it down at the Rotary Club or you may get it in your family. Or you may get it just hanging around a bar, shooting a breeze with a bartender. But everybody needs that. And music played is often played for those reasons. It's psychological. You have psychological needs. You do. Don't claim you don't. If you claim you don't, you just haven't examined them. You actually do. And I do. We all do. Everybody does. And we also have these societal needs. We need to fit in. We need to be in our, you know, we need to be accepted. You know, when, when somebody signs up as a, as a patron on my Patreon page, I'm like, I'm accepted. You know, there are other reasons why people play music, perhaps for political reasons. Maybe, you know, I'm going to write a protest song. I'm going to, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to write this song, you know, and you know, that's a re music is used to communicate a lot of different ideas. You could just communi communicate, you know, um, a, a thematic type thing, you know, um, looking back at the past and how, you know, 
maybe life is better back when we lived in an old log cabin or something. That could be your, you know, political statement. It could be very mild, though. You could be making a political statement about how much you love moonshine or something, you know. Or you could be making a political statement about, you know, saving the whales or something. But to use music politically, you may have to be a little careful because that may not work out with your need for fitting in socially. You know, you may um, ostracize yourself from certain people if you turn it into a political thing. But you're free to do whatever you want to. But you have to just remember that if you run into somebody playing music, they've got a motive for doing it. If you run into somebody who's just sitting on the fringes of a jam session and they know two chords on a mandolin, they have a reason. They have a reason why they bought that thing. And they have a reason why they showed up. And they have a reason. And the game, just like me and that rooster, the game, the lifelong game that we are all obligated to play is to try to understand that person and to try to understand yourself. What are the reasons? Why does this guy show up? Why does he come on Tuesday night and play? Why does this guy over here, why does he play too fast? Why does he... And when you get into a band situation you got the same kind of thing going on. It's kind of on a different level because you're working theoretically towards a group outcome. So you have to work together and you have to be aware of and always second guessing, you know, trying to figure out what, what are they thinking and present your ideas in such a way that they're not just immediately shot down that you don't hurt people's feelings, no ad hominem attacks and, you know, cause you're trying to maintain these relationships. You know, if you go to a concert and you see the most fabulous bluegrass band in the world and they walk on stage, it's real easy to sit out there and listen to that great music and that great singing and great picking and entertainment and think, wow, they have put a lot of effort and they've got a, a lot of talent and a lot of preparation and they have produced incredibly great music. But you know what? If you were hanging out backstage with those guys after the show, that's, ah, they'll talk about the music. But to them, it's different. It's, it's about the relationships that they have with each other and the relationships they have with you, the audience. They're saying something to you. They're, they, somewhere in all that music, Buried between the lines is buy our CD because the bus needs gas. Or when they mention, you know, tomorrow night we're going to be up in, you know, Springfield, Missouri. They are hoping that you will understand that, and that's going to require fuel, a lot of fuel for this bus to get us up there. And, you know, there's a lot of subtext is what I'm saying between the lines. And these guys go back there and they may be talking about fishing, you know, and they got to spend many hours on a bus together. Or in, a, in the case of a local band, uh, there's been many a rehearsal. 
that I've gone to and the first hour was spent talking about somebody's car problems or something was going on at their job or problem they were having at home, you become friends, you become a tribe. That is a motive for being a musician. I mean, because you got your buddies, you got your friends, you got your, your cohorts, your people you can, you know, when you break down, you can call the guy and he'll actually come and help you. You know, he will. You become friends. So it's it's psychological needs and you got to try to understand yours and other people's. And it's fitting into this little subset of society or society as a whole or not fitting in. These are This is all part of music. And frankly, it's part of any activity that you take up that involves you leaving your own little personal property and going out in the world and doing it. I don't care if you, you know, you want to build radio controlled model airplanes. You could sit in your garage and build you a, an incredible, you know, a four and a half foot wingspan RC plane and make it just fabulous. And, and then take it out in your backyard and fly it. And then when you're done flying it, put it back in the garage you could do that. Or you could load all that junk in the back of your car, drive down to the state park where they meet every Sunday afternoon and fly and get to know some of these people and learn, you know, look at their plane and see what they're doing and, you know, swap ideas and, and work together. That's the social part of this. There is as much of that, there's more of that going on in bluegrass music on a percentage basis, then there is, you get a bunch of bluegrassers together, they're not talking music theory. It may come up, but they're talking about a lot of other things. <laughs> they're talking about that crazy nut in the front first row, or they're talking about, you know, they had a flat tire, or, or they backed their Volkswagen bus into a stump in their in your driveway last week when they left practice. That happened to me. They're real people interacting with each other and so music can do that for you and you've got that interaction with the audience if you're playing for yourself you might as well you might as well just stay home just if you are just there for your own amusement just no point of going anywhere just stay home play for your own amusement i'm not saying don't do that i said you can do whatever you want to do but the real value of music is in playing it for someone else. If nobody ever hears what you do, you really haven't done it. If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, did it make a sound? You know, it's that concept. So anyway, that's my little mind play today. And again, I'm not telling you what to think. I just hope that when I uh, lay out some of these things that you'll think about them and you'll decide what's the best path for you and your best mode of thinking. So anyway, thanks again to the uh, Patreon supporters. Just go to patreon.com slash Bradley Laird and scope it out. You know, I would really appreciate it. You know, you chip in a quarter, quarter a week, that's a dollar a month. That ain't much, you know, and boy, will it let me know in a very strong way that you like the show. So I appreciate that. And of course, I would be amiss if I didn't also mention that you can also support the show by just telling other people about it. You know, just 
tell your picking buddy, hey, check this show out. This guy's half crazy, but you know it's pretty pretty cool. If you're bored, you know. Or there might be a particular episode, you know, there's a somebody in, you know, you've encountered like, boy, you know, he, I wish he'd hear episode 13, you know, send him a link to it and say, hey, check this out. You know, you could do that. And of course, there is a possibility that somebody has purchased some of my instruction material as a way of saying, thanks for doing the podcast. I just don't have any way to know that, you know, if, if you're that person. I just can't identify your motive. Maybe, you know, either you want the jam session survival book mobile edition because you need the chords at the next jam session. And that's, I, that's perfectly good with me. Or maybe you just did it. Cause like, yeah, I'm going to chip five bucks into this guy and I don't really need this thing, but I may not even download. I just don't have a way to identify you if that is what you've done. But if you have done that, I'm saying thanks. So anyway, that's it for this episode. Um, thanks a bunch for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I'll talk to you back here in the next episode.